Now, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, please just feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep those. Um, Zechariah is the second to last book of the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew right at the beginning of the New Testament, just go two books back, Malachi, Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3. If you're using one of these Bibles we've provided, it'll be on page 676, and it'll also be on the screen behind me. Will you please follow along as I read Zechariah chapter 3? This is God speaking. Then he, God, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we, we approach your word once more so grateful that you are not silent, that you have not left us to guess what you want us to know and what you're like, but you've given us this, this precious word in which you tell us who you are and what you've done, and you have given us your spirit who helps us understand and see how it relates to our lives, that changes our hearts as we hear. And so I pray, Father, that you would come and be with us this morning and that we would hear you speak as we study, as we look at your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Several, several years ago, while I was still living in Wisconsin in the States, before I was married, I went on an adventure trip with some teenagers from our church. We... Um, we were camping and hiking and kayaking, rock climbing, and one of our guides from the camp on this week-long trip was a young woman, and I spent the whole week trying to impress her, which is what young unmarried men do on trips like this, um, and this, this young woman, her sister had also been a guide years before, and she had known some of these teenagers, so the teenagers knew the sister, but they didn't know this young woman who was with us, and, and it was really clear that she wanted to be known not just as the other sister, she wanted to be known as an individual in her own right, which made it all the more terrible when, when we were hugging goodbye at the end of the week, I called her by her sister's name. And, um, I mean, her reaction was she just 
pulled back and, and looked up at me and said, seriously? And I mean, I didn't even know the sister. I'd never met her. I just, I just called her the wrong name. And, and that was the last thing we did before we piled into the vans to go home. And you can imagine, I was just, you know, my face was burning. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I, I was just filled with regret the whole drive home. I, I knew there was nothing I could do to make that right. That was just kind of the, the closing touch of the week. Now, that is a trivial example of regret. It wasn't a sin to forget her name, nor it didn't do any lasting damage. It probably was a little hurtful to her. It was certainly embarrassing to me. But we all know the feeling of regret, that, that feeling of being unable to fix what we've done. And, and we all have examples of it that we wouldn't be so keen to share in front of the whole church. We've said words that we knew would hurt because we wanted to hurt. And we can't unsay them. We've shown children, our children, a kind of anger that they should never see in someone they love. Our, our dishonesty has been exposed and, and trust is lost. We've, we've broken relationships because we've been so focused on ourselves. We've fallen short of our own standards to say nothing of God. So what do you do with your guilt? That, that sense of having fallen short and there being nothing you can do to make up for it. Some of us deny our guilt. We become just experts at, at finding a way to justify what we've done, at, 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 at finding a way to, to say to ourselves, I was in the right. Anyone in that position would have done the same thing. And so we become hard-hearted. We become, we become, it becomes impossible for us to ask for forgiveness. We become proud and judgmental. Some of us... Uh, try to atone for our guilt. We commit ourselves to, to doing better, to doing so much better that it's, it, it totally overwhelms the wrong thing that we did. And so we just, we just live and we're exhausted by this treadmill of penance because we never know when we've done enough. Some of us um, just carry the guilt. We just, we just carry our regret kind of in the pit of our stomach and it, over time it eats us alive. What do you do with your guilt. Scripture tells us that there is such a thing as guilt. There's no use denying it. But it doesn't have to ruin you. Real peace with God and others is possible even after great failure. So in the days of the prophet Zechariah, God's people were wondering about this same question. They had turned from God. They turned from him to idols. And, and they were they refused to repent even after years of God sending prophets to plead with them, to call them back to himself. So God sent them into exile, far away from their home. And after 70 years, God mercifully brought them back, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem. But God's people continued to stray. They continued to fail. The exile hadn't fixed them. And God made promises to them that he would dwell in their midst. This is what you can see if you have your Bible open in Zechariah 2, verse 5. God says, I will be to her, to Jerusalem, a wall of fire all around. He'll protect her, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. He would live in her midst. Look at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So God, God promised to dwell with his people, but how could he? How could a holy God live in the midst of, of these guilty people? In chapter 3, God gives Zechariah a vision that answers that question, a vision that shows how. And this vision is going to show us 
what we can do with our guilt. So we're going to see in this passage an accusation, an exchange, a charge, and a sign. And you have, a, you have an outline on the back of your bulletin if you grab one on the way in. First, an accusation, which is this. We don't belong in God's presence. So verse 1 sets the scene for this vision. Look at that if you will. Then he, God, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So it's a vision of a trial. And the angel of the Lord is there in in God's name as judge. And Joshua, the high priest, is standing before him accused. And Satan is there. Satan, whose name literally means the accuser, is there accusing Joshua, who's representing the people as high priest. So before we see what happens next, we need to know who the high priest is. The high priest is the representative of the people before God. He, he brings the sacrifices in the name of the people to atone for their guilt. So, so once a year, there's a, a day called the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would go into the most holy place in the temple, and he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the box containing the, the Ten Commandments on stone. And the top of that box was called the Mercy Seat, the Throne of Grace, And that's where God's presence dwelt. And so the high priest would offer blood over the mercy seat and God would release his people from their sins. Their sins would be atoned for. That was the high priest's job. He represented the people before God. At this time, at Zechariah's time, the high priest is someone named Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. So here in the vision, Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord as representative of the people. And it says in verse 3, that he was clothed with filthy garments. He was representing the people, and because they were guilty before God, he was wearing their guilt like, like filthy garments, like totally soiled clothing. And, and, and not just a little dirty, like he dribbled some ketchup on it, or like a child with peanut butter on their hands gave him a hug, but soiled, head to toe. I mean, if you imagine what it would be like to be presented before the queen just covered in mud, head to toe, you still haven't come even close to the shame of appearing in the presence of God, covered, soiled, filthy with guilt. And so when Satan accuses Joshua, when he says of him, this man is guilty, this people is guilty, he's not wrong. What he brings up against the people is entirely true. So, but before we go further, we need to see who Satan is. Who is, who is this accuser in the picture. We don't know a lot about him at this point in the Old Testament. We'll learn a lot more when Jesus appears on the scene. But what we know is that his agenda is to disrupt God's desire to dwell among his people. So God, from the beginning of scripture, God has this desire not just to make people, but to be in their midst, to love them, to be a father to them, to be face to face with them, like he was in the garden. And, and like he did in the garden, Satan is always trying to disrupt that program, right? In, in the garden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. And because of their guilt, they were, they were cast out of his presence. They had to leave the garden. And here again, we see him bringing up the people's sin, bringing up their guilt against them, saying, in effect, these guilty people don't belong in your presence. You, you shouldn't have them with you. You shouldn't be with them. You can't live among them. But see what God says in verse 2. 
God himself, this is amazing. The people are on trial before the angel of the Lord, and who comes to their side? God himself. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So what does God say in their defense? Does he say, come on now, they're not so bad. Yeah, they've made mistakes, but they'll do better next time. No. Satan says, these people are guilty. And God says, these people are mine. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. I chose them. I know they're guilty, but I chose them. I rescued them. He says, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? I have chosen them. I have rescued them. They're mine. And if you've trusted in Jesus, when Satan brings up your sins to you, when he accuses you in your, in your mind, when he, when he brings up all you've done, this is God's declaration over you. Not he's good, not she's perfect, but he's chosen, she's rescued, they're mine. Germany is justifiably famous for its castles. But one castle is especially uh, notable for having what is possibly the world's most famous ink spot. So Wartburg Castle was the temporary home to Martin Luther at a time when he was on the run for his life. He'd been accused of heresy. And so he was holed up in this castle, translating the New Testament from Greek into German. And, and the story is told that Luther had a dream, and this, this is how it goes. The great reformer dreamt that Satan appeared to him with a long scroll in which were carefully written the many sins and transgressions of which he was guilty from his birth, and which the evil one proceeded to read out, mocking the while that such a sinner as he should ever think of being called to do service for God, or even of escaping himself from hell. As the long list was being read, Luther's terrors grew and his agonies of soul increased. At last, however, rousing himself, he jumped up and exclaimed, It is all true. It is all true, Satan, and many more sins which I have committed in my life, which are known to God only, but right at the bottom of your list, and he quotes 1 John 1, 7, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And grasping, this is so Luther, grasping the inkstand on his table, he threw it at the devil, who soon fled, the memorial of it being left in the ink splash on the wall. Can we be done pretending that we're not guilty? Can we be done pretending that we haven't done anything wrong? Satan, Satan knows the truth. God knows the truth. We are guilty, but we've seen that God defends his guilty people. And look what he does next. We've seen an accusation. Secondly, an exchange. Look at verses 4 and 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, to Joshua, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I, Zechariah, said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. God's holiness requires holiness. His purity requires purity. And yet we have Joshua standing before him clothed in the filthy garments of the people's guilt. 
And what does this holy God do? He trades them in. He removes these filthy garments, the guilt of their sin, and he replaces them with, with the pure vestments of the priesthood, with the, with the robe and with the turban. He takes their guilt and replaces it with perfect righteousness. What God requires, he provides. And, and notice, we've seen, we've seen what's happening with these characters in this trial, right? The angel of the Lord is there to judge. Satan accuses. God defends. What does Joshua do? Nothing. Right? His righteousness is nothing that he has done. There's nothing he has done to earn this gift of righteousness. It comes as the kindness of God. And the same is true for everyone who trusts in Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Philippians. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Listen. The righteousness from God that depends on on faith. What does Paul count on to make him righteous before God? Does he count on knowing the Bible better than anyone in his day? Does he, is he counting on the fact that he's planted churches all over the Roman Empire, that he's, that he's suffered almost to the point of death repeatedly to advance the gospel? No. The only righteousness he knows he can count on is the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness that God gives to those who trust in Jesus, who say, I am guilty, and there's nothing I can ever do to erase it, but the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. To everyone who confesses that, God takes the filthy garments of our guilt and he clothes us in the perfect righteousness of his own Son. And from that moment on, that person becomes as pure and holy in God's sight as his own perfect son. It's called justification, and it happens not through anything we do, but just through trusting in Jesus. So, do you know God like this? Do you know him to be this good? That what he requires, he provides. That though he's perfectly holy, and we are guilty before him, He gives us righteousness just through trusting in his son. This is a good God. This is a generous God, a loving God. This isn't the God that some of you think that he is, that he's impossible to please, that you always have to be making things up to him. You always have to be running on that treadmill of of atoning for your own sin. Stop. Trust Jesus. Receive righteousness as a gift. But some say, if we believe this, if we believe that salvation is a gift, then we'll just, we'll just what's to stop us from just living however we want to live, just sinning all the more because we know we're forgiven? Is that what we see here? We've seen an accusation, an exchange, and now thirdly, a charge. Live out the righteousness you have by faith. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So God says, 
I have made you fit to serve as priest. I've made you a fit representative of my people. I've made you pure and righteous. Now live out in practice the righteousness that I've given you by grace. Walk in my ways. Keep my charge. Fulfill your calling to represent the people. Now, if you have kids, you already know that you are raising sinners, right? Your kids rebel. They won't eat their sandwich. They won't put on their pants. They, they sneak screen time when they should be doing homework. They miss curfew on purpose. And what do you say to them? Do you say, you are out of line and you got to watch it because we will, we will put you out of this family? I am sure that there is a family who would love a child who hits his brother with trains. No, you don't say that, do you? You say, in this family, we treat each other kindly. In this family, we honor mom and dad. You say, your status is secure, and because of who you are, live out the identity you've been given. You are my child. Now live like my child. You're you're brothers. Live like brothers. We call them to live out their identity. And this is God's way too. He gives us righteousness as a gift. And then he calls us to live out that identity. Becoming more and more in real life like we already are in his sight. He even gives us his Holy Spirit when we trust in Jesus to change us from the inside out. So God says to Joshua, if you live my way, you will truly be my priest. But remember, Joshua is the representative of the people. This isn't just for him. Now, you might remember that when God brought his people out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt at the Exodus, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And this is what he said to them there. See if you can hear the echoes of what God said to Joshua in our passage. Exodus chapter 19, verses 4, and si- four to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, And keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So did you see the parallels? I have rescued you. I have brought you to myself, made you my people. Now be my people. Live as my people. He says, um, if, if they do that, if they obey his voice and keep his covenant... They will be a kingdom of priests, all priests. What what the priests are to the people, representing them to God, representing God to them, they will be for the nations, for the whole world. That if they live holy lives and if they they speak God's words, that they they will be a kingdom of priests, all priests, priests to the nations. And the apostle Peter applies this to us. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, speaking to Christians, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, so Peter says that if we live in response to God's grace, we live holy lives. We serve people in love. We speak to them about Jesus and what he's done, that we will be that we will be a royal priesthood. We will draw people to God. That we will serve them in his name and glorify him, declare his excellencies among them. Not so that God will call us righteous, but because he already has. 
But there's a little hint of uncertainty here. And I wonder if it caught your ear or your eye. God says to Joshua that if he, if he serves faithfully, keeps his charge, um, obeys him, then I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. In other words, that you'll be welcome among the angels in his presence. Now, on one level, that just means that Joshua needs to, he needs to be godly in order to be the priest. And that makes sense, right? He needs to, he needs to be godly in order to have this position. But, but what does that mean for the people? What does it, does it mean that if we fail to obey, if we fall short, that we're no longer welcome in God's presence? Can, can anything disqualify us and send us away? Can anything separate us from the love of God? Could they lose their status given by grace? We don't have to wonder. We've seen an accusation, an exchange, a charge, and finally, a sign. A kingly priest is coming to bring perfect peace. Look at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. A sign. God says there's something more going on here than just establishing a priest or showing his love. He says that, that, these, that Joshua and his friends, these other priests, they're a sign. A sign of what? He says, I will bring my servant the branch. So someone's coming who God calls my servant and the branch. Who is this? Now this, this ties into a thread that runs through the prophet. So I, need, I need you to follow me a little bit to see how this all fits together. And if you do, you are going to see beauty in your Bible. So in Isaiah 11, verse 1, this, we read this sometimes at Christmas. Isaiah prophesies, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So Jesse was the father of King David, right? And the kings of Judah were all in David's line. They were all in David's family. And at the exile, they were cut off. So, so Jesse's family is like a stump. It's been cut off. There are no more kings. But God says that a branch will come from that root, a shoot from the stump. There will be a new king in David's family, the branch. And Jeremiah says in 23 verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So what's going on here? Follow me. This is really important. So God says that these priests are a sign of someone coming called the branch. And the other prophets say that the one who's called the branch is a king. So what we're expecting is someone who is both a priest and a king. And that is weird. Because priests and kings were always separate, right? The, the priests come from the tribe of Levi. The kings come from the tribe of Judah. There hasn't ever been a priest and king. And yet the prophets are insistent that someone like this is coming. Look at chapter 6, verse 11 of Zechariah. He says, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown. And set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. 
and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. A priest on a throne. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Like a king, he conquers and saves. Like a priest, he's humble. Mounted not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Now, have you heard that passage before? Do you know what today is? Palm Sunday. When we remember that Jesus came into Jerusalem a week before the resurrection, five days before his death on a cross, and he entered it to, what were the crowds shouting? Hosanna to the son of David. The king. The king is coming. And Matthew tells us that that moment fulfilled this verse. Zechariah 9.9. Jesus is the branch. And do you know where Jesus went immediately after coming into Jerusalem? The first place he went when he came in through the gates. He went to the temple. Because Jesus is the king and the priest. Now, why does this matter? Why, why, what, why do all these connections matter? Why are we jumping all over the Bible? Just come with me a little farther. Zechariah said the branch was coming, but he also called him, God called him, my servant. My servant. And this is the key to seeing why this matters to us. Because Isaiah tells us what God's servant does. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Who is he? Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. The servant is the branch. What does he do? Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So what is Zechariah pointing us to when he says, I want you to watch for my servant, the branch? He was looking to a day when a king would come, but he would come like a priest. He would come to offer a sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself for his people. He was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds, we were healed. Like Joshua, he represented us, but in a way that Joshua never could. Jesus took our filthy garments upon himself so we could have his spotless robe. He was rejected so we could be chosen. He endured the fire of God's judgment so we could be plucked from it as a brand from the fire. He wore a crown of thorns so that we could wear a crown of of righteousness. He took our place as our representative before the holy justice of God. And what's the outcome? Zechariah tells us at the end of verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. When Jesus died on the cross, God removed the iniquity of the land in a single day. He made perfect peace, peace between men and God. Zechariah says it beautifully. He says this in in chapter 13, verse 1. He says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from all sin and uncleanness. There's Jesus 
dying in our place on the cross, opened a fountain to wash all our sins away. And he will make, it says that he will make peace between us, peace between one another. So if you, if you were a Jew, just thought experiment, if you were a Jew and you had gone away into exile, 70 years, maybe you were born far from the land and you came back and what you found was city walls broken down and houses destroyed and crops burned, just everything destroyed, nothing left. What would you dream about? You dream about having your own little piece of land where you could, you could grow not just kind of the essential crops, not just grain for bread, not just raising some animals for meat and milk, but, but maybe a little vineyard, a place where you could make your own wine, maybe, maybe a fig tree for something sweet in season, maybe some neighbors to enjoy it with, and such freedom from fear of your enemy that you could leave your plot of land unattended, go to your neighbor's house, and sit with him in the shade under his fig tree, and truly, deeply rest. God says that one day he will make this kind of peace for his people in the world, in reality, in time and space. But, but today, we can have this peace today in our hearts. You can know your sins are forgiven. You can have rest from the work of trying to earn your righteousness before God. You can have rest from your enemy who accuses you of all your sins. Do you know this rest? Do you have this peace? Listen, your peace with God is secured by your representative from God. Martin Luther said that when Satan accuses you, when he brings all your sins against you, there's going to be something you point to to show that you're really not so bad. right? So maybe you would point to your career, and your job, and you'd say, but I'm a very successful person, and people look up to me, and, and I'm, I'm important. Or maybe you'd point to your family, and you'd say, um, I, I've been incredibly successful at my family. Look, look at my happy spouse. Look at my successful children. Maybe you'd point to your generosity, all that you've given away, or your morality, all the rules you've kept. You'll point to something and say, I'm not so bad, and whatever that is, that's what you're counting on to secure your acceptance with God your approval before him. But only one thing will do. Only one solution gives genuine rest. The representative God has provided, Jesus, who the author of the book of Hebrews calls our great high priest. Jesus took your iniquity so you can have his righteousness. Trust in him. When you fall short, Repent and ask forgiveness, but always, always trust. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we rejoice. We rejoice at what you have done. You are the king who came to rescue us, the king who came to save, to defend, to secure peace, and you're the priest who came to make peace with God, who, who brought the sacrifice of your own life, who shed your own blood so that we could receive your righteousness, so we could know that before God, through faith, we are approved and accepted and have life with you forever.
Father, I pray that you would help us by faith to have this assurance that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, washes away all of our sins, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Father, help us not just to know, but to rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.